And he was like, oh my God, this could be huge for brands. I mean, it was so early. No brands were engaged in the social networks at the time. And he, we, we kind of took that brief and we were like, this actually could be amazing. And we ended up working on Nike's global social media strategy and their community management approach, launching like I actually literally was the person who built the Facebook pages for Nike, wow. Nike running and like, yeah. you know, it's, it was like built that. Welcome to Grow Your Creative Agency, a podcast. Nate, Nate. Yeah. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Okay. Hey, this is Eric Parnell, owner of the Northwest Collective. And Nate Kupish, owner of Blastoff Studio. Has your creative agency plateaued? Are you growing slowly and ready to scale up faster? Or maybe you're just ready to give up and get a nine to five. Listen in as we chat with founders who have successfully built up their own creative agencies. Join us as we learn how to get the clients you want, generate greater revenue, and develop a sustainable business model that makes you more productive and less stressed. Hey friends, today we have seriously an incredible uh, woman of influence and knowledge and experience around agency and work in general when it comes to the creative field. Her name is Liz Valentine. She is... Um, gosh, I mean, her, her resume and her work history is outstanding, but just as a couple bullet points, she was at Nike for 10 years. Uh, she started her own agency in Portland, Oregon called Swift and did that for about 15 years, ended up getting an offer just at the right time for a buyout by, um, another company and then continued to work for them for about six years. And now she's doing an entirely new agency, tapping into the new tech um, just an incredible conversation. I can't wait for you to hear about her name again, Liz, Liz Valentine. Let's just jump into the episode. To kick us off, do you want to just tell us who you are, what you do, where you're coming from? Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. And it's great to be here. So thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Liz Valentine, and I um, now live in Tumalo. So I moved to Central Oregon. I did a COVID move about three years ago. Um, but prior to that, I um, I was in Portland and built um, an agency called Swift there uh, over the course of about 15 years. Um, and before that, I was at I was at Nike full time for about 10 years. So um, have been in marketing and advertising and creative services for too long, 25 years. And um, um, and uh, and then most recently um, started another agency called the Alt League. So um, I am. I, I like to say a glutton for punishment because the agency business now not an easy business, but I do love it. Um, mm. and I found myself kind of back in that entrepreneurial mode again as an agency. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Can't wait to hear more about that. Sure. Uh, but yeah, before we go forward, um, take us way back. So you said you were, you were originally at Nike, maybe even before that, um, how'd you get started in creative services at all? Where, where'd yeah. that come from? Well, I, I actually studied art history and I've always in college, um, I've always, uh, I would say leaned creative kind of in, in, um, even going way, way back kind of to my childhood, but I've always been interested in kind of visual communication, storytelling. I loved ads as a kid. I mean, my, my room was just wallpapered with like Benetton ads and Esprit ads and, hmm. you know, like album covers. Like I just, um, I've, I've always, I would study, you know, Sassy magazine and all the, all the like teen magazines and just pour over the ads. So I've always been interested in advertising. I always had like 
a jingle in my head, you know, from commercials. So um, I think I was kind of drawn to it at an early age. And then when I went to school, just studied art, um, loved visual communication and storytelling and, um, and then took kind of an odd, an odd path, actually. So I, um, my first job was actually as a bike tour guide in France, nothing to do with advertising, wow. but an amazing nice. job. So I spent a year doing that. Um, and then when I got back, I got a job at a, a company called Forrester Research, and that's an, they're an emerging technology research firm. And it was a startup at the time. And the emerging technology they were researching was the internet and how it was going to change the way people shop and buy insurance and bank. And, you know, everyone thought no one will ever buy a TV online uh, or shoes online. And um, the work we were doing was kind of predicting how the internet was going to upend um, everything. And uh, it was really fascinating, really cool, um, you know, very, very cool time to get into emerging technology and how the internet was going to change things. And so um, I found myself, I was in the retail marketing team doing research there. So got some really uh, great early kind of strategic experience around e-com and then had an opportunity to join a women's sports apparel startup in Portland called Lucy Activewear from Mm -hmm. Forrester. So I went from Cambridge. I got a job as um, at the time an online marketing manager when no one really knew, like no one really knew what that was. Like we were building websites and emails. And frankly, I like I did an AOL deal, which is just hilarious when you nice. think about it. Um, but got the opportunity because I had what, what, been in the research space, um, the opportunity to, to take yeah, a market. How'd you, how'd you make that? How'd you make that jump? Um, you know, you were in research and then taking a marketing job. Um, what, what did they see in you? That was kind of the draw for them to want to pull you over. I think, um, it was so early. So this was 1997. Um, and no one knew anything really, right? Like it was everyone, like there was, there were just, um, everything was emerging. And because I had just, I would say the business knowledge side of marketing, I, Uh um, and that was just rare skill to find in someone at that time. So, um, I just, you know, frankly, was given a shot, which I appreciated. I was always an athlete as well. And so I was really interested in joining something that was focused on not just sports, but women's sports and mm-hmm. um, had just, you know, my job as a researcher was to talk to basically heads of marketing that were trying, that were building e-com websites that were starting to send email marketing campaigns. So I just learned a lot about what worked and what didn't and was able to transfer those skills into an actual marketing role. So that was my first hands-on mm-hmm. Job. And I made lots of mistakes and like everyone did, but, um, yeah. you know, you figure it out pretty quickly too, um, at the time because it was just so new. Yeah. Um, that's cool. I, I, uh, just on, you know, on your note about not knowing if people are even going to buy things online at that time, I remember, um, my brother was doing some internet marketing kind of stuff and mm-hmm. he had teamed up with a company this was in the nineties and he was doing these like funny ads or something and he'd get a commission and he, he told me I was, I was in high school at the time, but he's like, yeah, they're, they're going to send me a check for this work that I've been doing on the internet. And I was like, what, how is that possible? Uh Yeah, Like to me, I was like, you programmed our VCR to send you money. Like it was just this piece of technology in our house. It's like, how could that pay you? Uh Um, But yeah, it was a whole, 
whole different world. Yeah. And you just kind of jumped in and figured it out. And there were all these entrepreneurs launching really cool platforms. Like that's when affiliate marketing started, right? Where you get the commission. That's probably what your brother got. And we, yeah. you know, launched that program for Lucy and yeah, it was fun. So that's how I got into marketing. And then, and then from there I went to Nike. Um, okay. And was that a relational connection? A, you reach out and apply? How'd you move from Lucy over to Nike? Yeah, there was a connection. Um, so Lucy, um, like many of the dot-com, like 1999 dot-bomb era, right, yeah. had was venture funded and and then kind of that first internet crash came. And so everyone got laid off. I think there were maybe 90 of us or something at the time. Um, and I think maybe five people kept their jobs. So they oh laid goodness. off you know, 95% of the company um, and everyone, you know, kind of, Disperse, but we were in Portland and we had, um, frankly, been doing some really cool stuff very successfully. And so we just had, like, I had ecom experience at that point, I had email marketing experience, I had just general digital marketing skills. So I was um, picked up uh, through, through like, friend of a friend at Nike, just got the opportunity to join um, and kind of transfer those skills over to, at the time, what was called Nike.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, which just doesn't exist anymore. But that was where we were building kind of the first e-com website for Nike. Um, and then just doing kind of, I would say, brand storytelling. That was a focus for Nike at the time. So I was able wow. to that. And that was, ten, and then that, that took up the next 10 years of your career? Yeah, pretty, pretty close to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it wasn't quite 10. I, I'd have to go back and like. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Round number. And then, <laughs> and then what was, um was there an itch when, so coming to the end of this, time at Nike, was there an itch to do your own thing? What was, how did you move then into Swift? And yeah, what was that whole journey like for you? Yeah. So my, the itch was actually my daughter. I had my first child. Yeah. So I, um, I was working at Nike. It was a very intense job, very intense place to work. I had, um, I kind of started in e-com there and then I went into the global brand marketing team and we were, um, you know, building websites and digital experiences for Nike soccer and Nike women, Nike ID. It was a, it was um, just a lot of high expectations. We were doing, we did a ton of production. So we would, mm-hmm. you know, hop on airplanes and shoot, you know, everywhere. And, um, and so I was traveling a ton and doing a lot of production in New York and outside the country. And so when I had my daughter, I kind of felt like that was going to be too challenging. And I was just working so many hours. Like it was just such mm-hmm. an intense place to work, which was fine in my twenties. Um, and then I had my daughter when I was 30. So, um, I decided that I just needed to kind of pull back and, mm-hmm. um, and the easiest, um, yeah. to do would be my, be my own boss. And if I wanted to kind of be the type of parent I wanted to be, um, I just wanted to have, autonomy over my schedule and my time. And so, uh, which is crazy, right. To be like, you know, I just had a baby. So I'm possible just to internet, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, what, what sane new mother says, you know, the easiest thing for me to do is to launch a business, but I did. And actually it was great because I was able to bring my daughter to work and, yes. um, you know, work my schedule. And, um, you know, my office was literally overlooking the playground of her, of her daycare. So once she was in daycare, I was able to like see her and then she would come over, you know, at the end of the school day. And, um, and we did that for, you know, kind of all the way through middle school, the kids would just come to the office after school. And, um, and so it was a great, great thing to do actually as a mom. Can you paint us the picture, Liz? So this was, 
like, did you just rent a little office? Uh, like, how did, what was this? Give us the tactiles here. Yeah. So we had, so yeah, so Swift launched and, um, it was such a great time in Portland. Portland, it's expensive now, but it wasn't um, back in mm-hmm. 2006, right? So we found this incredible, um, really, I shouldn't say incredible. I mean, it was a hole in the wall space mm-hmm. that was um, in uh, Northwest, on Northwest Upshur, and it was a dollar a square foot. That oh, was, wow. Can you imagine, right? Yeah. I mean, these, and I ended up becoming very friendly with the business owner and the whole building was just, it was artists, photographers. It was, you know, fully creative class um, set up and the owners owned a lot of, of, you know, pretty prominent buildings in Portland and Barb was one of the owners. And I would, you know, got to know over the years and I say, Barb, how do you, you know, and still we were there for like, I want to say eight years, a dollar a square foot. And we kept moving up and taking over more space. And we finally had the whole top floor. And I'd ask her, like, how do you afford to do this? Like a dollar a square foot. And she'd say, honey, where are all the artists going to go if we don't have this building? Wow. And so it's totally subsidized. Um, That's amazing. It was great. Yeah. So it was, it was, you know, no air conditioning, no sinks, no, you know, shared bathroom. We used to like take our dishes in an old tray and wash our dishes in the bathroom sink. Yes. um, it was, nice. yeah, it was, yeah, it was super, but it was really cheap. And so we started, mm-hmm. I think maybe with 350 square feet and then we, you know, busted into the next door space and we had 700 square feet. So I rent with $700 a month. And then we just kept moving around the building and taking up more space until we had to move into a prop. We, we hit a certain number of people. It might've been 35 people or so, and just realized we needed like a proper space. Um, and that oh. was a rude awakening. Well, let's say that price wise. So, yeah, I mean, even um, going back from there a little bit, you know, so you, you started Swift, you had to get out on your own, get some independence, um, kind of make your own schedule. But what were, what was the say first client or maybe first big client for you? Um, and how did you kind of get your feet on the ground? Yeah, well, I was very lucky in that my first client was Nike. So I left Nike and they were like, do you want to take all your work with you? <laughs> so nice. I just was able to start Swift with Nike as my client. And um, it doesn't really get luckier yeah. or yeah. better than that if you're starting an agency. So um, I had been producing um, content for Nike Plus and their relationship with Apple Music. So I was producing kind of all the Nike Plus workouts with Lance Armstrong and Serena Williams and Eric Goucher and um, and kind of managed a relationship they had with Interscope Records and Apple. So it wow. was, I don't want to say it's fragile because it was healthy relationship. Yeah. You were very, a key person in all that. Yeah. 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 So we just moved all that work over to Swift and um, produced all that content for them for years um, and all the marketing for Nike Plus. And I was like in the middle of the Beijing Olympics campaign when I, when I decided to um, move on. And so they just asked if I would like keep working on that. So I was able to, you know, Nike was a, it was awesome. I mean, it was a very foundational client for Swift, which was great. Um, and then, but then I, I would say like the, the, um, probably the biggest client, um, win that was independent of that relationship. We did, um, get an RFP through a friend recommended us, Mm -hmm. um, for Black Diamond Equipment, they were doing a new e-com site and kind of marketing support and all of that. And so they RFP'd like 20 agencies. And 
we ended up participating in that pitch process and we were still really small. We were pretty much doing a lot of Nike work and, um, but we, how many people? um, how small were we? Yeah. Yeah. Doing the Nike stuff. We were probably about 12. And were you building all the e-commerce? Well, I guess you were working for Nike, so a little different uh, actual assets. But then for this Black Diamond one, did you guys develop all that in-house? I know I'm jumping ahead a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we pitched, well, we won it. So we we were able to win the account. And then we, yeah, we we had um, brought some folks in to pitch it with us that we had. And I had been in e-commerce for Mm -hmm. a long time because that was kind of what digital was back then, I guess. It was like, you know, banner ads and... Uh, e-com websites, so and emails. So I had um, a lot of experience, and I had a lot of experience doing that at Nike. So we pitched and we won it, and then we just brought the right people on to kind of do the site build, and um, and that was probably our biggest like win outside of mm-hmm. because it wasn't a relationship; it wasn't someone that we had known for a very long time. Like we genuinely, legitimately pitched against twenty agencies and and beat them all as a really tiny new company. So that was great, and that relationship went on for years as well. Um, cool. Yeah. What what kind of scope was that project? I know you said it was the biggest. Um, you know, it was and in the millions. It was in the it millions. Was, yeah, so, it was a big one. Yeah, yeah. Probably winning that gave you a sense of stability and like, okay, this is not just my Nike work that I brought with me, but we're really on the map now. Yeah, and I think, and that was always a concern and advice I always give agency yeah. founders is you know, never let one client be more than a third of your revenue. And so that was something we were really intentional about. We knew a lot of agencies in Portland, you know, have a lot of Nike work and it can be 70% of their business, 80% of their Mm -hmm. business. And that's such a dangerous thing because say your Mm -hmm. client leaves and takes another job and the person coming in is like, I have Mm -hmm. my own people or, you know, or whatever. They just, they look to make a switch. Um, And so that was something very intentional from the beginning. We wanted we had our Nike work and it kind of forced growth actually, because as the Nike work would grow, we would then really yeah. intentionally try and seek diversification. Um, cool. And we did that with um, the other sector, which I still recommend and always um, I'm a big believer in having healthcare as a vertical within mm-hmm. your agency because it's um, really stable. People always yeah. get sick. They always yeah. get sick. So um, we had, the other thing we had was legacy health. So we had an interesting portfolio. It was like athletic outdoor, really sexy brands. And then we had legacy health, which is a big Portland um, healthcare system. And we did their website and all their marketing and campaigns and all of that. They were amazing client, lovely people to work with. Um, but having that, like finding that diversification and stability, even like not just brands, but different sectors, because you can have like retail take a hit, you know, but healthcare is maybe stable or financial services is stable. So having the vertical diversification is a strategy that I think every agency owner needs to be really, um, really dedicated to. I love that. Can I jump in Eric with one? Okay. Um, Liz, can you expound a little bit, give us the crash course in how to write proposals just general for people, because I think this is where people get stuck. Oh man, I have a great website. My work's up. It's or our work is up. It's amazing. Uh, okay. I'll put a little keynote deck together. What is, how would you go about writing a proposal back then with mixed with today's knowledge? You have, you know, a few people on your team and you have a big opportunity to present your yourself as a possibility. What, how do you go about it? Well, are you talking about an RFP or like, so you, oh, excuse me, like for black diamond, was that, was that an RFP or was that yeah. 
It was okay. not. Yeah. So it's a little different. Um, but just in general, let's say that someone comes, um, it, somehow it comes into your sphere that they need work and they, you know, they need an e-commerce site in this example. And they say, would you go ahead and, and give us your proposal for this work? How do you go about writing that, about putting that together? Yeah. I mean, I think it always, um, it's always great if you can get as much information about the business challenges that they're, that they're wanting to address and to gear your proposal very specifically to solving those problems. So Mm -hmm. I think that for agency owners, um, if you can show that you have a strong business sense, skill set, and experience and acumen, especially as a creative agency, that you're not just, you're not just there to make things look cool, um, is that you really, you know, you really do have the experience and the focus and the ability to be able to tackle business challenges. I always drill into that as much as possible because I kind of feel like you can't even write a proposal unless you know what they're struggling with. So getting under an NDA, um, oftentimes what I'll do is do an audit. Um, and so if you can kind of get under NDA and do an evaluation across the performance of their marketing mix, frankly, to see if you actually think they need your help, mm-hmm. you know, to think you can actually do better than what they've been doing. Um, there's nothing worse than putting a lot of time, effort, and en- energy into winning a piece of business and building the relationship only to realize like you either don't have the right skill set or, you know, they, what sometimes clients think they need something and they don't. And so, um, I think those long lasting relationships really come from being candid and honest about what you're excellent at and what you can really help with and what maybe isn't the right fit for you. So I think you just have to really dig deep in order to assess whether or not you are the right partner. And then if you genuinely, like you uncover, you know, maybe they're giving you access to, um, I'll just use like a digital marketing example, but access, you can see the performance of their, say, paid social media, their email marketing, their search advertising, their web performance, all of that. If you can get some visibility into what's working and what's not and, and genuinely evaluate whether or not you think you can improve it, your proposal will kind of write itself mm-hmm. because you essentially write the plan and the strategy as part of the proposal, or at least where you'd start in the first quarter. That's the other piece is I, I think it's always good to, you know, do a discovery phase and then say, you know, the first quarter together, this is what I propose we tackle. And it may or may not be exactly what the client came to you for. And I think that's mm-hmm. actually a good thing mm-hmm. um, when you can have an opinion and a point of view on how they should use their to them, their precious resources, right? Their, mm-hmm. their budget. Mm-hmm. And then say, after three months, you take a pause and you evaluate, are we doing the right thing? Could we do something differently or better? And, and you kind of keep updating that proposal in the scope. But I kind of think the days of, you know, year long retainers where you think, you know, everything are just gone. Cause I just think mm-hmm. there's so much optimization that happens in the work and the relationship over time that shapes it. That was fantastic. Thank you, Liz. Yeah. 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 Really good stuff. Okay. Well, I know um, I, I have some more questions along those lines too, but I want to make sure we get through the story and we're, we're partway there. Um, so yeah, maybe keep going. Um, you, you won this big RFP, um, got this, some stability in the company. Um, where did things go from there? I know you said diversity was really important. Um, I know I, just from knowing about your company and kind of where you've come. I know that things continue to grow, but tell us about kind of what, what took place. Yeah, we, um, probably the, 
the biggest like development was um, social media becoming so important um, because we started the agency. I think Twitter was founded in 2004. Facebook was founded in 2006, but they didn't have paid ads until 2010. Like you couldn't, or you couldn't, you couldn't be a brand on those platforms. Hmm. Um, and so we did get an incredibly lucky break. We had, um, it was really early, like 2010 and Nike was like, what do you think we need to care about Twitter and Facebook? What should we be doing about, you know, these new platforms at the time they weren't even, they were called social networks. Um, and so, and it, we kind of dug deep into it. And my, um, one of my business partners, Rick Albano, he was, um, our executive creative director. He's a writer and he had been really into blogging. And he was like, oh my God, this could be huge for brands. I mean, it was so early. No brands were engaged in the social networks at the time. And he, we, we kind of took that brief and we were like, this actually could be amazing. And we ended up working on Nike's global social media strategy and their community management approach, launching, like I actually literally was the person who built the Facebook pages for Nike, wow. Nike running. And like, yeah. you know, it's, it was like built that platform. Those um, this was at Swift, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then we, you know, content became a huge opportunity because the traditional production approach where it's outsourced and it's really high production value and pretty slow, we knew it wasn't going to work for those platforms. So we, we, brought production in house and um, we had just had so much production experience working with Nike for so many years. We, we knew we had to approach it differently. So we, we built an in-house studio. So we had, you know, full-time photographers and videographers and editors and stylists and, you know, that just kind of scaled. Um, and then, so we were doing a lot of like most of Nike's social media work, frankly, when no other agency wanted to touch it, everyone thought it was like, lowly and you know back then it was wasn't like this the super like sexy 60 second spot right tv spot and it was that time when people just didn't they just didn't no guidelines yet digital yeah so but we kind of loved it and respected it from the beginning and and i feel like that's the story of my career is like i've always just loved digital and um so we grew that business. And then Starbucks was like, who's doing Nike's social work? And so then they called us and we got that account. And then Google was like, who's doing Starbucks and Nike? And then we got that call. So we just grew up really. Yeah. We got big because we had, we had focused really pivoted on how do you, how do you scale really high quality, you know, very brand forward social work and produce it, you know, and manage community and do all of that. And, you know, it just wasn't, like I said, people, it, it wasn't the work that a lot of creatives wanted to do. It wasn't the work that a lot of people respected. Um, but we just saw it as super powerful and mm-hmm. invested in it. And so there just weren't that many options, frankly, if a brand wanted to outsource it once it became important and really big. So like once the apps really took over. So um, that's how we, that's how we kind of really scaled the business. So we went from, you know, 30 to 60 to 90 to 120 to 200, like just kind of like, you know, every year we doubled. Um, yeah. How was that? How was that on your energy, your emotions? Oh, I had such an incredible team. I mean, it was exciting. I liked, I liked building the business and it wasn't like all rosy. I mean, it was hard and we, you know, like 
had to learn how to lead a company and, you know, we just, we were winging it um, every step of the way, but the team was incredible. Um, and, um, you know, I think one of the piece of advice I would definitely give agency owners is be very clear on what you're good at and very clear on what you're not good at and anything you're not good at, find someone who is and don't try and micromanage it. Don't try and control it. Like, so, you know, we had, um, our, uh, Marin Elliott was our, and she started as a content producer for Nike, but then quickly moved into, she had previously worked in hiring and kind of talent management. So she very quickly moved into that, um, built her team. You know, we were able to, we had great recruiters and incredible ops team. I'm not an ops person. So just had incredible people that we brought in who, um, just put the systems and the processes in place and, um, yeah. And I think you know, we treated people really well. It was a great place to work. So people wanted to work there. So hiring actually wasn't that, wasn't that hard when you have a good yes. reputation. That's the other piece of advice. It's like treat people incredibly well and actually clients know it and people will kind of work with you. You can't scale without, I don't think you can scale without that. And how did you structure your leadership team? Would you do it that way again as you went from one to five to 10 did you stay the sole proprietor? How did you go about that? Yeah. So the business started, there were, um, so we, there were myself and Alicia McVeigh. So she was the chief creative officer. So we owned the business, but we very quickly, um, like I'm trying to think exactly when, but within probably two years, um, as we brought people in, we gave them equity. Mm. So we didn't hold on to all the equity and, um, and, we so the leadership team kind of there was five core people as part of the leadership team that became kind of owners in the company mm -hmm. and so that is something i also believe in and recommend is you know it's hard to scale a business on your own and you can't be greedy you have to bring people in and you know help them um you know give them a reason to really care and really want to build it with you and so um so we we kind of the core five people who held the leadership roles all had equity. And then we built our senior leadership team. Um, and that, I guess, maybe took a little bit more time. It kind of happened over, like just over the years and over time, we, we, and we delegated a lot to that senior leadership team. So the kind of the five partners in the business, we, we did, you know, there were certain decisions that only we would make, but really not that many and mm -hmm. delegating authority, delegating decision-making and autonomy. Um, I think is really important because you can't scale a business if you're the bottleneck, if you only have a few people who can make decisions. So um, yeah, we just kind of scaled it over time and made it really clear what decisions people could make, what they needed, you know, to up level if, if there was, um, you know, an issue or something that needed to get done, but trying to keep those decisions that the founders or the partners need to make pretty small. Um, so then the founders and the partners can focus on long-term strategy. You delegate day-to-day -day operations and decision-making to a leadership team. Um, and, and then from there, I think as long as people, I find most people just want to know what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. And most people want autonomy. It's very demoralizing, you know, to yeah. constantly be getting permission and approval for decisions. And so I think just, you know, that's another big piece is, is delegation is just key to growth and scaling. Nice. Fantastic. Cool. Well, um, yeah, part of this that I kind of want to dig into is obviously some 
huge names that you've been able to work with over the years and, you know, have this global marketing experience. Um, you know, Nate and I both have kind of small local regional shops. Um, so coming from a different world and I think probably some of our listeners too. So a couple questions for you, how would you say that, um, you know, the work that you've done might differ from a small shop, you know, building a $20,000 website, for example, um, versus the kind of work that you were doing. And then another part to that, if somebody wanted to get into some of that larger, bigger brand work, do you think there's a pathway as a small shop or is it usually birthed out of you know, an existing relationship kind of like you had or where, where you were coming from. I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think the relationships definitely help, but I think, um, I think there is a pathway and there's a lot of, you know, I think probably most, it, it, the one thing I realized was it was actually very unusual to go from the client side to the agency side, at least back then, maybe a little less so today. That wasn't a very common you know, experience. I think most agencies start out um, without that type of really deep connection. Mm -hmm. And I think it just comes down to doing really awesome work, like for whatever client you have, you know, and I think you kind of, um, I think if you place your emphasis on work that really like helps move their business, that is you know, really beautiful or really remarkable or just gets attention in some kind of way, kind of outsized attention, I think that's how you start to work your way up, right? So you may go with like a very small and local opportunity and get the attention of more of a regional one. And you go from a regional to more of like, maybe it's it's outside of Oregon and it's, you know, a California company. And, and that word of mouth, I think, you know, if you have clients that are recommending you or really longstanding relationships, I think that um, and then frankly, just ask your clients for introductions. I mean, that is a number one thing when you're doing great work for a client, you know, you can, you can just simply, you know, say like, we're looking to grow our business and, you know, you're a partner in their business growth and ideally clients are partners mm, in your business good. growth too. And so you just ask them for connections, any brands that, you know, they might know that, um, they'd be willing to make an introduction to, but I think, so it's really, it has to be very intentional, I think, um, so I do, I do think you can make that leap. And I think it just comes down to networking and, and building your reputation through the caliber of, of what you, what you create. Um, certainly easier when you have a great connection, but sure. I think most people don't have that, you know, most, most places they've kind of worked their way there. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. That's good stuff. Yeah. 10 years at Nike. That's, that's groundwork for there were obviously some pretty amazing moments of, I don't want to call them chance or whatever, but a lot of the relationships you built were, it sounds like were the roots to get you into that next space. I think Eric's got one or two more for you and then we'll kind of wrap up. This has been amazing. So go for it. Eric. Yeah. Well, I know um, like you shared with us, you're kind of on to a new venture at this point, but um, as far as getting there, I know that, selling the business was a part of that. Do you want to tell us kind of how that came about and what brought you to that point? Yeah. Um, we, I mean, it wasn't ever the plan. So it, you know, opportunity presented itself. We won like at age, small agency of the year 
Um, and once that happens, everyone, all the holding companies call you. So um, just literally, that's how it happens. So wow. um, so awards can be important. Um, we, yeah, I mean, we got the phone call and it was probably, I would say the timing was right um, for kind of all the partners who owned equity in the company. We'd been doing it for a really long time at that point. I think we were like nine or 10 years in. Um, and, um, you know, I always say like, even with job interviews, when someone you always answer the phone, when someone calls, always take that call because you never know what's on the other, other end of that mm-hmm. conversation. So, you know, we took the calls and had the opportunity and, um, you know, and, and we had hit a point where, you know, no one kind of tells you this when you start a business. So this is actually another piece of advice. Um, I think when you start a business, you don't, you don't know. I mean, data data basically says you're not going to make it, right? It's like the majority mm-hmm. of the small businesses fail within the first couple of years, right? So you kind of, at least for us, it was like we took a shot, but we didn't really expect to be as successful as we thought. And, and we didn't ever, we didn't take any, um, like we didn't do friends and family, you know, round of funding to start the business. We didn't bring in investors. We bootstrapped the whole thing. And, um, which is easier when easier in services than like physical good manufacturing. Right. So we were selling our time. And so we, you know, we paid ourselves very little for very long, very kind of early in the company. And, um, and, you know, we kind of scrapped our way to our success and, but you do hit a point where you become, uh, you hit a certain level of success and it's actually really hard to scale the business without a lot of investment. So for example, we had grown out of, we had a lease for a building in Slabtown in Portland. It was a, I think it was a 10 year, $5 million lease, if I remember correctly. That's a big one. That's a big one. Yep. But we have outgrown the space in two years. Oh no. So we were busting at the seams. So then we had, we annexed another building and we annexed another building and the company was kind of split up between buildings in this neighborhood. And we really needed a 30,000 square foot lease and space. And it was at the time when Portland then was just growing like crazy. We were competing with like Amazon and Airbnb for office space. And um, everyone we met with, no one would give us a lease because we didn't have the um, credit history. We didn't have like basically we had to sign a $10 million lease and we didn't have $10 million of collateral. So, you know, you do things like, like my, my, all the partners homes, their mortgages were collateral on that lease that we had outgrown. Oh my goodness. And that's how it works. Wow. Yeah. When you start to get into some of those bigger, bigger numbers, like it's your retirement accounts, it's your mortgage. Like you are Mm -hmm. 100% responsible. So you lose one client and you can't pay your bills and you're wiped, like your house is wiped as part of it. And so you kind of hit that point where you, you know, you just kind of like, whoa, this is getting serious. And, um, you know, you talk to your significant others and it's like, I mean, I remember telling my husband, like, we're looking at 30,000 square foot leases that are going to, it's going to be a $10 million commitment. And, you know, we had, we started the business like pretty soon into 2008 and the whole financial crisis. Like we had been like ups and downs had happened um, and anything could happen. And you kind of reach a point where you either need to take massive investment in the form of private equity um, or, you know, we had the option to sell the business and to really scale it and reach our potential and continue to grow. We 
we it was the right thing to do at the time mm -hmm. um so we did and it went really well you know honestly i had a great experience i mean it was good it was they were good good acquirer and i had a great experience and i learned a ton um what, and that was, was that a, an, like an investment banker or another agency that was acquiring or um, it was a holding company. So WPP is a British holding company and they are, um, I think they're like the third, I think they're the largest advertiser in the world, like a third of all oh. ads they oh have goodness. something to do with. Yeah. So they're really big. So we sold to, and we hired an investment banker to broker okay. that deal and negotiate okay. and, and evaluate the offers that we had. So we sold to them. Um, and then they leased a 30,000 square foot, $10 million lease. And we didn't have to put our houses on the line for it. Oh, good. So we moved and it next year. Yeah. What year was Amazing. that? Um, I think it was 2014. Okay. And then did you stay on for a year or two? For six. For six. Yeah. Okay. And then just for time's sake, fast forward us to today. Can you give us uh, a little bit of insight to what you're doing right now at the OutLeague stuff? Yeah. So I did, I spent six years there at WPP and then, um, I took a year off cause I know one year non-compete. So I did a non-compete year and then I did a little bit of consulting for a year and was trying to figure out if I wanted, I wanted to keep working for sure. I love to work. And I did some consulting, trying to figure out if I wanted to go client side or back to agency side. I actually said I would never work in an agency again when I left. I was really burnt out. I got to be honest. I had just yeah. been doing it for so long and it's such a hard business. It's so, sure. it's such a hard business, especially now. Um, and, but I honestly, I missed it. I love the creative community and I like, I, I have massive ADHD and I like to work on lots of different things. I want to work on like, you know, like retail to finance, to healthcare, to you know, auto, like I just love the variety and learning about so many different businesses. Um, and I like to make, I like to make things. I like to actually make things and, yeah. and not oversee making things. So like I said, glutton for punishment at the beginning, I um, decided I didn't want to go client side. I didn't want to, you know, just kind of do consulting that I really wanted to build something again. And um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it with a woman that Meredith Chase is my business partner, um, and we have worked together. She was at Lucy. So we go all the way back. Wow. Crazy. She was at Lucy That's and then cool. she was at Nike. And then she joined Swift. And then when we sold, she took a leadership role at WPP um, with me. And so we've worked together for over 20 years. And wow. yeah, so it's great. And so we're building something new. And we have a lot of original, um, some of the original team from Swift joining Whoa. us us on projects. So it's been fun. It's like, it's like the, the old gang is back together. Um, no way. Really cool. And the URL for listeners to go check it out. Oh, it's altleague.com. www.altleague.com. Yeah. Alt it sounds like a superhero name, altleague. And we're doing a lot. It's, been, it's cool. You know, the, one of the things that um, I had that year off and then I had kind of a consulting year and so much exploded around artificial intelligence in that time. And then all the tool sets, you know, became consumer facing. And so one of the things that really motivated, motivated me to to it was like, how do you use all these new AI tools to build a different agency model? Like, how would you approach mm -hmm. talent and pricing and, um, you know, scheduling and like, like how you work? Because it just, it there's literally some, some tool set uh, along every single part of the creative process that is being changed by AI. And so that yeah. was a 
the big impetus was let's get really smart across these tool sets and let's think about how you how would you build an agency in this new way, in this new world um, that harnesses all this tech and what does it do to the business model and the approach? And so that's been, it's been, I would say like really intellectually quite stimulating <laughs> because yeah. it's not just going and doing it the way we did it before. It's actually trying to- in the Something sense, totally new. Yeah. And like every single- step of the process, you say, wait, hold on. Is this the right way to do it? Is there an alternative way to do it? Which is kind of where Altly came from is constantly looking for alternative ways to approach solving problems using technology in new ways. So that's been a kind of the underpinning of the new entity. And so it's been fun because it feels like the internet feels like if I go all the way full circle, my, the internet was changing everything when I started my career. And then social changed everything in marketing. And we got really invested in that really, really early on. And we're doing that again with AI. So it's an exciting time to be starting something new. You're on the new wave again. It's fun. Yeah. It's nice. really fun. It's really frustrating too. But because you, you know, it's like as you get older, I'm sure you guys um, feel this way too. Like you, you get so good at doing things a certain way. And so you're just constantly forcing yourself to learn new skills, even though you mm-hmm. know you can get it done in a way you've been doing it for five you years the shortcuts totally yeah you know but yeah. those shortcuts are going to be dated so you got to just kind of learn new ways to do stuff so that's been mm, it's hard nice. it's a lot of patience um and non-billable time too that's yes. the other thing it's non-billable time you got to learn all that stuff on your own dime and so that is a it's i think it's a really hard time to be an agency owner right now because of this new technology the investment you have to make in assessing and evaluating yeah. tool sets is um, I think it's critical. I think if you don't do it, you're in a lot of trouble very soon, mm-hmm. but you can't bill for it. That's hard. Wow. Mm. That's, that's something I'm going to need to take to heart. <laughs> Sorry. I don't want to end that's on a downer. <laughs> no, oh my gosh. That's not a downer. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much. Uh, we may somehow twist your arm into being on this again because what? you have only scratched the surface, but I, uh, I have no doubt. Eric and I, obviously, but no doubt our listeners are just going to praise you for everything that you shared, for how helpful it's going to be. So thank you for making time. Liz, um, really encourage everyone who's listening, go check out altleague.com, see what Liz is up to these days. And uh, yeah, we just, we say big thanks to you. Bump into your own town. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks. 